is why we are here today. It's to glory in you, to rejoice that you are our savior, that you are our righteousness. We come not offering anything to God um, in and of ourselves. We come with empty hands to receive, and you've poured out grace upon grace to us. We glory in that. We rejoice in that. We boast this morning in Christ. Lord, we are your people. And as those who have received your grace, who glory in the redemption that you've provided for us, we also come eager to receive your word today, that you might continue your work of sanctification in us, that you might feed our faith, that you might equip us for life and for ministry, that you might sanctify us. Lord, we recognize there's areas of our life that is in need of ongoing transformation. We trust you that your grace is sufficient for this work. So we come recognizing Lord Jesus, that you have something to say to us today. So Lord, speak now through your word. Speak with authority. Convict us. Encourage us. Illuminate the truth that we might know you and love you as we ought. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Luke. It's been uh, a while since we were in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm excited to jump back into it. Luke chapter 11 is where we'll be. And our text will be verse 37 through 54. Warnings are very valuable. Think about some of the warnings that, that we might pay attention to in our, in our day and age. You might pay attention to a traffic sign that warns you of an upcoming sharp curve. If you're driving 75 and the little yellow sign says 35, you might be in trouble, Right? We also listen to warnings from doctors. You ought to make some changes when a doctor warns you about high blood pressure. Just like the person who's driving 75 on the 35 mile an hour curve, if you don't make changes, you might be in trouble. We always think twice and we check our refrigerator, don't we? When the CDC warns us about a bad batch of lettuce and an outbreak of salmonella, nobody wants any of that. We listen to those warnings, don't we? Those who don't listen to such warnings barge ahead blindly. Those who don't listen to those kind of warnings walk in a willful kind of ignorance into dangerous territory. You risk illness, you risk injury, perhaps even you risk death if you don't listen to important warnings. And if those kinds of warnings from human authorities about physical matters are so important, how much more Ought we to listen to the warnings that come from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Warnings he gives us about matters of deep and even eternal spiritual significance. Let me catch you up here just a little bit in the context of where we're at in Luke's gospel. Things have been building at this point in Luke's narrative. Jesus in chapter 9 verse 51, it says, has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's journeying towards that city, and he's making a beeline for the cross. And along the way, he continues to minister. He continues to teach. He continues to perform various miracles. And despite his miracles and clear teaching, there's a growing resistance to Christ from the religious leaders. Some of them accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, the prince of demons. That's chapter 11, verse 15. In chapter 11, verse 16, we see that there's others who are demanding a sign from Jesus, demanding that he do one more miracle, that he explain things one more time as if it hasn't been clear already. Jesus refutes their arguments. Jesus exposes their unbelief as a moral evil. 
In chapter 11, verse 29, he calls these people a wicked generation. Their rejection of him, their hard-heartedness towards him, no matter what their excuses, no matter what their protests, no matter what their reasons, he calls them a wicked generation. And he offers this warning. Look in verse 35 of Luke 11. It's right before our text. Jesus says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful, Jesus says. It is possible to be extremely religious, to have access to the truth, and yet be spiritually blind, full of darkness. The religious leaders claimed that they could see the light. They claimed to be the experts in the scriptures. They were the ones who were supposedly passionate about the right interpretation and the proper application of God's law, yet they have rejected Jesus, and they are full of hypocrisy. Jesus says, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. But skip down to the first verse of chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus offers another warning. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So there's two warnings here. Be careful and beware. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In between these two warnings which bracket our text today. Jesus exposes this hypocrisy for all to see. He pronounces a series of woes, three on the Pharisees and three on the scribes. And in doing so, Jesus tells us exactly what it looks like to be full of darkness. As he gives these woes, he defines for us what this spiritual hypocrisy is. It serves as a stunning rebuke to the religious leaders of the day but it also offers a sober warning to us. Be careful. Beware. Disciples of Jesus must guard against spiritual hypocrisy. That's the main point of the text we'll be looking at today. Disciples of Jesus must guard against spiritual hypocrisy in all its forms. Now, this word hypocrisy is a loaded term. It's one that many in the world today will wield against Christians in an effort to discredit the church, to discredit the gospel, to discredit whatever sort of righteous influence Christians are seeking to have in the world. This hypocrisy word gets lobbed at us all the time. But I want to use the word the way that Jesus does. Hypocrisy. I don't want to use it the way the world uses it. So what does spiritual hypocrisy look like? Well, in our text today, I believe Jesus gives us seven marks of spiritual hypocrisy so that we know what it is we're supposed to watch out for, so we know what it looks like, these things that we are supposed to beware of, seven marks of spiritual hypocrisy. The setting for our text is found in verse 37. Jesus is having a meal. Um, it, it appears to be a lunch, a midday meal in the house of a Pharisee. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. This connects this scene to the scene that came before, where Jesus is talking about lamps and light and your eye being, and your body being full of darkness. This Pharisee is hearing everything that Jesus says, and he says, why don't you come to my place for lunch? And Jesus agrees. A dinner party was a key social scene in the first century. And it was always more than food that was on the menu. These meals were a time of discussion and discourse where wisdom would be shared and, and, and ideas would be examined together. It was especially a time to honor certain guests, perhaps a traveling rabbi like Jesus. 
And this is a common scene in Luke's gospel. In fact, this is the fourth of seven of these banquet scenes in the gospel of Luke. And three of these seven meal dialogue scenes actually take place in the house of a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a religious party. They were made up of laypersons from all different walks of life, so they weren't necessarily um, priests or scribes, although some of them were. This is just a, a religious party. And these people, the Pharisees, were passionate about holiness, passionate about spiritual renewal in Israel. And that's a good thing. And it started off as a good thing. They dedicated their lives to the careful observation of God's law. Now, if you were part of a nation that had spent 70 years in captivity and had been sort of kicked around like a hacky sack between all the different various empires of the world, and if you knew that all of that was God's judgment on your disobedience, wouldn't you get really serious about obedience? Wouldn't you get really serious about holiness and the proper worship of God? Well, they certainly did. But in addition to the law of Moses, what the Pharisees did over time was they added their own traditions. They added their own rules and regulations that went beyond the written word. And, and the aim of this was that they were specifying exactly how the law was supposed to be applied and even trying to build fences to keep people from getting too close to breaking the actual law of God. Well, one of those traditions that the Pharisees observed was a ceremonial washing before meals. They would wash their hands. And in verse 38, we're told that the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. This washing was not to wash off dirt, necessarily. It was rather a ceremonial thing. It symbolically uh, was to signify cleansing from potential defilement, spiritual defilement, ceremonial uncleanness. In Mark 7, 3, we're told that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, according to the tradition of the elders. This is a human tradition. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't observe the ceremony. He didn't do the symbolic washing of hands before the meal. Now, let's not get this distorted in any way, Jesus perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law. He obeyed what was written in the scriptures, but Jesus would not be bound and controlled by human traditions that went beyond the written word. Again, to quote from the book of Mark, Mark 7, verse 6, Jesus says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. There's nothing wrong with symbolically washing your hands before a meal. But what Jesus doing was provoking and confronting a group of people that had come to value their traditions and actually dismiss what God's word said. Well, Jesus foregoing hand washing astonished the Pharisee. He's shocked. Doesn't Jesus care about holiness? Doesn't Jesus value what it means to be clean as a, as a faithful Jew? This is a rabbi, is it not? Why would he not wash his hands? Well, Jesus perceives his surprise, and he takes this opportunity to press in. Jesus actually cares far more about holiness, far more about honoring God than the Pharisees do. And in what follows, Jesus, like the prophets of old, exposes and rebukes their spiritual hypocrisy. We find the first mark of spiritual hypocrisy in verse 39 through 41, and it's this. Number one, spiritual hypocrisy focuses on the external. Spiritual hypocrisy focuses 
on the external. Verse 39, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus points out that while this man and and others like him, the Pharisees, they give great attention to external rituals, like cleaning the outside of the cup. They fail to give attention to the matters of the heart. Just like a coffee cup that is maybe wiped clean on the outside, but on the inside it's got stains and rings and maybe some fuzzy stuff growing down in the corner. It's not clean on the inside. It doesn't matter how clean the outside is. You don't want to drink out of that kind of cup. Now, this is a stinging rebuke that Jesus offers in verse 39 when he says, inside you are full of greed and wickedness. It's ironic. It's a bitter irony because these people prized God's law. They would have seen themselves as the defenders and the upholders of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember the final commandment? It's against covetousness. It's against a desire of the heart for things that you don't have. And Jesus says, you are full of greed. You're full of greed. Not only does he say they're full of greed, he also says they're full of wickedness, which again is a bitter irony for those that that profess to be defenders of holiness and upholders of righteousness. He says, you're full of wickedness. You're not what you claim to be. You are not what you think you are. Jesus says, this is hypocrisy because they only focus on external matters. Jesus reminds them that God sees not only our external behavior, he also sees the heart. And we are obligated to honor our maker in both realms. He says in verse 40, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He says, have you forgotten who God is? Have you forgotten what God is like? Have you forgotten what it is that God desires, what God expects? The God who frequently in the Old Testament says, I hate your feasts. I'm not interested in your sacrifices. I want your heart. This is hypocrisy. Jesus says it's foolish to think that God will be pleased by merely external obedience. You see, these people have a deficient understanding of what it means to actually be clean. Jesus says true cleanliness starts on the inside and it works its way out. Verse 41, he says, but give as alms, This is maybe charitable contributions. It's the good works you do on the outside. It says, give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus says, it's the good works that are actually rooted in a good heart that offer a true expression of humility and faith and worship towards God. That's what it looks like to actually be clean. This is why we find so much emphasis on the heart in Scripture. In David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, by the way, a repentance for a very physical kind of sin, David recognizes the need for a clean heart. He says, create in me, Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's sin was very physical, but he knew he needed internal cleansing. God's promise in the Old Testament, the hope of the new covenant, was that he would give his people A clean heart, a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart 
of flesh. The person whose heart is submitted to God, the one whose heart is actually changed, not only experiences an internal change, a change of desire, a change of value, a moral change, but that internal change produces external change. It changes our behaviors. Simply put, Jesus is teaching that if you only clean the outside, you're not clean. But if you come to experience internal cleansing, you'll get external cleansing as well. Give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Friends, any honest assessment and evaluation of our spiritual health must include not only external behavior, but also the condition of our hearts. Anything less is spiritual hypocrisy. So what do we do if we discover that there's something unclean in us? How do you clean the inside of the cup? Would have been a good question for this Pharisee to ask. Well, friends, that cleaning of the inside of the cup, that's actually the work of Christ. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our defilement. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to renew us and redeem us. Psalm 51, again, David prays for God to give him a clean heart. He prays for God to blot out his transgressions. He prays that God would purge him with hyssop. He's asking God to do the cleansing. In 1 John 1, 9, we're told if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The cleansing that you and I need actually comes from God. So if we perceive a need for cleansing, we ought to be turning to the Lord. These Pharisees were rejecting God's offer of cleansing by rejecting Christ. But mere externalism... Jesus says, this neglect of heart issues, that spiritual hypocrisy. But then he gives us a second mark of spiritual hypocrisy. In verse 42, not only do, do those that are hypocritical tend to focus on external and neglect the internal issues, but in doing so, they also major on the minors. Spiritual hypocrisy, number two, majors on the minors, emphasizes less important things to the neglect of the things that matter most. Look in verse 42. He says, but woe to you Pharisees. Here's the first of those woes. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus doesn't have any issue with tithing per se. Tithing is biblical. They were attempting to obey what the Old Testament taught, that they were to offer their first fruits to the Lord, that they were to give the Lord a tenth of what they had in, in a sort of offering of worship to him. Elsewhere, Jesus commends a poor widow for her tithe at the temple as she puts in her small coins into the offering box. So Jesus doesn't have an issue with tithing per se, but he has an issue with what the Pharisees are doing. They're going beyond what the law says to tithe even of herbs, small, dried, crunched up little bits of leaves, right? How do you even measure that out? How do you know what that weighs? How do you measure a tenth? I don't know. But consider how heavy are the matters that they neglect. He says they tithe mint and rue and every herb, paying tiny attention to the smallest details, but they neglect justice and the love of God. And those are weighty matters. Justice is righteous dealing with others. The Pharisees cared more about getting the right amount of mint donated to the temple than they did about righteous dealing with others. 
He says they neglect the love of God. The love of God is the first and greatest commandment. It doesn't get any more important than that. Talk about a misplaced focus. They're majoring on a minor issue. They're straining at gnats and swallowing a camel. They're neglecting what is arguably the sum and substance of the entire law when they fail to do justice and they fail to love God. And Jesus doesn't say they should stop tithing necessarily. He's actually arguing for both. Look what he says in verse 42. These you ought to have done, sure, do all the tithing, without neglecting the others. He's not saying switch. He's saying include both. Include both. Those who love God will seek to honor him in the smallest things, but they will also seek to honor him in the big things. You don't get a pass on the major failures because you happen to check a few boxes with the minor details. Spiritual hypocrisy is always lopsided in what it focuses on. It's lopsided. Making a big deal out of small things and minimizing things that are actually really big. Jesus argues for a both-and approach, one that cleans the inside and the outside, one that's careful to honor God in the small things and offers him glory and honor in the big things that he calls us to do. Spiritual hypocrisy focuses, number one, on the external. Number two, it majors on the minors. There's a third mark of spiritual hypocrisy in verse 43. It craves the praise of man. He says, woe to you Pharisees, verse 43. Here's our second woe. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Here, Jesus gets to the issue of motive. They love to have the seat of honor, the place of prominence in the synagogue. It's a little different then. Where you sat really made a big deal. Here, I think the premium seats are actually in the back, but for them, it would have been in the front, right? But it mattered where you sat. People wanted to be seen. It was the seat of honor, And the Pharisees love that. They love being recognized for their efforts to bring holiness and righteousness back to Israel. Verse 42 says they did not love God. Verse 43 says they instead love themselves and they love the praise that comes from men. They want to be seen, to be noticed, to be admired, to be appreciated. They love it when they walk in the room and the spotlight shines on them. They love to be known as a somebody, as a big deal. But the praise of man is ultimately worthless. Jesus says that if that's all you live for, that's actually all you will get. In Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus instructs, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. If you want people's admiration, go for it. But Jesus says that's all you're going to get. God does not value that. God will not recognize that. God will not bless that. God will not reward that. The praise of man really means nothing. Think about it. What's it really worth? It fades away. In as little as two generations, people will barely know any of our names. Have you ever thought about that? Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? How about your great-great-grandparents? Do you know what they did for a living? Do you know what they accomplished? Do you know what their favorite food was? Do you know what some of their famous sayings and stories were? Do you know their address? Some of you do because you like to do all the family genealogy research. But for a lot of us, we can barely go back in our own family tree and remember and honor people. And that's blood. Do you think people who aren't family are going to remember you? What is their praise really worth? Why do we care so much about the praise of man? 
Love for the praise of man is not just worthless, it's wrong, and it's actually dangerous. In John 12, 42, Jesus says, or John rather, writes, telling us that many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If you live for the praise of man, the glory of man, that can be spiritually deadly to you. Spiritual hypocrisy is not concerned with pleasing God. It's concerned with impressing people. It doesn't seek God's approval. It seeks man's recognition. And for all of their so-called passion for holiness and honoring God, Jesus exposes, you don't worship God, you worship yourself. People today may not express it in the same way as these Pharisees. In our church, nobody really wants to sit on the front row, for example. But the root issue here is really the love of self. And self-worship is alive and well today. Self-expression, self-care, self-esteem, right? But Jesus condemns religious effort that is nothing more than self-seeking and self-promoting. He says that is spiritual hypocrisy. He gives us the next mark of spiritual hypocrisy in verse 44. Not only does it seek the praise of man, but it also has a defiling effect. It has a defiling effect. He says, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This is another very ironic rebuke. The Pharisees, again, remember, it's a holiness movement. They're all about purity. They're all about bringing back a high view of God's law and an intense passion to be set apart from the world and to be, to be acceptable before the Lord. But Jesus says, you are actually defiling everyone around you. You're having the opposite effect of what it is that you think you're accomplishing. The law of Moses taught that coming into contact with a dead body, coming into contact with caskets or tombs or anything like that, that it made you ceremonially unclean. Again, this isn't about germs. It's not about bacteria. It was about being ceremonially clean and holy before the Lord. Sometimes you couldn't avoid becoming unclean. There are certain aspects of life, childbirth, um, or, or caring for a dead loved one. They had to prepare the body and perform the burial and all of those things. You couldn't avoid becoming unclean. But following that, that experience of becoming unclean, you had to go through a waiting period and certain ceremonies before you could touch someone or something that was clean without defiling it. Before you could perhaps go to the temple or the, or the, the synagogue, they didn't want to bring any contamination in. Anything an unclean person touched also became unclean. And this is why their tradition was to often whitewash graves. They would whitewash these graves in the spring of each year. And it was a warning sign. If you saw a little mound and a rise in the hillside as you were cutting through a field and it was painted white, you knew not to touch it. That was a warning sign. It said, Danger, there is corruption, there's a decomposing body, there's bones underneath. Don't walk across this because it will make you unclean. Jesus says these people are like unmarked graves. There's no whitewash, there's no sign, and they are bringing defilement to people without their knowledge. Again, for those who claimed to be all about holiness and purity, this is a devastating critique. They thought they were doing people a favor with their presence. The greetings in the marketplace, the best seat in the synagogue, I am a holy person, and you guys are lucky to have me here. 
Jesus says, no, you are corrupting everything you touch. Their emphasis is on the externals. Their emphasis is on minor issues while they neglect major issues. They have a proud desire for prominence. Most of all, they're rejecting Jesus and they're bringing all of this spiritual and moral defilement with them and spreading it to other people. Spiritual hypocrisy is not just a personal failure. It's contagious. That's why Jesus warns his disciples. He says, beware, watch out, be on guard. Because this hypocrisy can not only infect you, it it can spread to the people around you. It can do harm to the spiritual community. Spiritual hypocrisy has a defiling effect. We see the fifth mark of this spiritual hypocrisy in verses 45 through 46. Spiritual hypocrisy, fifthly, it burdens others. Not only defiles others, it burdens others. In verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. We're now introduced to a new character, a lawyer. The lawyer here, he's not an attorney the way that you would think about a lawyer today. He's a scholar. He's someone who studied God's law. He's a student of the scriptures. They are often referred to as scribes. He's a professional. He's an expert. The Pharisees were a religious party, remember, made up of laymen. But this man is one of the architects of the system that the Pharisees subscribe to. He's the one who's saying, this is what the law means, and this is how we should all apply it. And the Pharisees are taking that ball and running with it, but this man is one of the architects of the system. So when Jesus condemns the Pharisees, he's really taking aim at the practitioners of these ideas. But in doing so, he's also condemning their teachers, and the lawyer knows it, because he's one of the ones giving the official rulings that the Pharisees follow. And he says, you insult us also. This is a very strong word. He's taking offense to what Jesus is saying. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. And I've got some for you too. I have more to say. He doesn't defend anything that he said. He he doesn't back down. He presses in and he gives three more woes, this time addressed to the lawyers. He says, woe to you lawyers also, verse 46. For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. These scholars, they piled on these incredibly complex and demanding interpretations of the law. The the regular people who came around these scribes would have been dazzled with their knowledge and with their wisdom and their skill at weaving together this Rubik's Cube of of laws and regulations and practices. It had become so complex and demanding, it was almost impossible for someone to actually keep it all and do it. So they burdened the people with their interpretation and application of the law, but they had no interest in actually helping people. They're like shepherds that didn't bother to feed the sheep. Shepherds who would not help the sheep out of the ditch if they fell in. Shepherds who would not show them the path to still waters. They're not good shepherds. For all the scribes did, their their work did no spiritual good in Israel. It just burdened people with impossible demands. In fact, they piled all these demands on the people, and they refused to help them, and they actually knew some of the workarounds. They themselves did not lift a finger. They they didn't try to bear up under this burden themselves. They didn't even keep all of the law because they had these little exceptions and loopholes and workarounds that actually made it much easier for themselves. That's convenient. They didn't carry the burden they laid on others. 
They had no mercy on others, but they were quick to relieve themselves of the burden. Jesus says, woe to you for that spiritual hypocrisy. You see, the hypocrite, hypocrite rarely loves others. So they're not going to help others. They rarely serve others because the hypocrite's focus is himself. The hypocrite's motive is pride and exalting himself. Why would he give you a leg up if he's trying to climb the ladder? And the bad fruit of this religious hypocrisy is that it does not produce service or mercy. It produces comparison to other people. It produces criticism of other people. It produces condemnation of other people. It produces competition with other people. That's the bad fruit of spiritual hypocrisy. It burdens others. Jesus isn't done. We find the sixth mark of spiritual hypocrisy in verses 47 through 51. They also offer empty honor. Spiritual hypocrisy offers an empty kind of honor to God's messengers, to God's word. We see this in verse 47 through 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you wash or you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Remember, Jesus is speaking to men who immersed themselves in the Old Testament. They were scribes. They studied the scriptures. Therefore, they were familiar with the prophets. They studied the prophets and their writings, and they claimed to care deeply about the prophet's message. They devoted their life's work to their writings, and they even built updated and, and more ornate tombs to honor these prophets, some of whom had been put to death and martyred by hard-hearted and unbelieving generations in Israel in the past. In doing so, these scribes felt like they were carrying on the legacy of the prophets and they were giving honor to the prophets, that they were standing on the shoulders of the prophets. But Jesus says this honor in building their tombs is empty. If they honored the prophets, they would have embraced their message. They would have repented. They would have feared God. They would have done justice and loved mercy and walked humbly before God. But that's not what the scribes were doing. If they really honored the prophets, they would have recognized that the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit. But instead, in their pride and their hardness of heart, they're actually carrying on the legacy of the people who put the prophets to death. They've rejected John the Baptist, the last of those prophets. They're in the process of rejecting Jesus, and they will soon conspire to put him to death. The scribes and the Pharisees are carrying out the legacy of the people who kill the prophets. God has sent many messengers. In his wisdom, he has countlessly, in each generation, revealed his will to his people. But there's a long list of people who have responded with a hard heart. And Jesus says, you're in that group. That's where you belong. You're part of that long tradition of people who have always rejected God's messengers. In fact, this goes all the way back to Genesis 4. 
He talks about the first martyr, the first righteous man who was put to death by a wicked man with a hard heart, Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. That's Genesis 4. It says, from the blood of Abel all the way to the blood of Zechariah, one of the last prophets in Israel who was put to death in the very temple itself, put to death right in front of God's face, not killed in a back alley, not, not secretly assassinated and, and covered up, killed in broad daylight right in the temple. And Jesus looks at these men and says, God's judgment against wicked men who persecute and kill righteous men is coming, and you're in line for it. Wicked men have always rejected God's ways. They've always rejected God's word. And therefore, they always oppose anyone who represents God's ways and God's word. And that's what these men are doing. They're finishing what their fathers started by conspiring to kill Jesus. They would later kill Stephen, that first martyr in the early church. They would later put to death James the apostle and many of the other apostles. And because of this, Jesus says, you are going to experience judgment. I imagine this would have raised eyebrows. These men who handled God's word, these men who built the tombs, Jesus says they're going to be held accountable. He says, yes, I tell you, verse 51, it will be required of this generation. The culmination of Israel's rejection of God and his word would come in AD 70 when Rome would come in and flatten Jerusalem and destroy the temple. This generation would experience God's judgment. And more than that, they would be part of that group on the last day who experiences God's eternal judgment. They will be held to account. They're going to take their stand, not with the prophets in the day of judgment. They will take their stand with their wicked forefathers, the ones who put the prophets to death. So their show of honor to righteous men is actually empty. It's empty. Spiritual hypocrisy, both then and now, may give lip service to faithful saints. Spiritual hypocrisy may give lip service to good preaching, may give lip service to accurate doctrine and profess to care about all of those things. And yet buried beneath is a hard heart that is resistant to the message. Spiritual hypocrisy offers an empty kind of honor to God's word, God's messengers. There's a final mark of spiritual hypocrisy. This is a seven-point outline. It's a longer one than normal. The final point this morning is that spiritual hypocrisy hinders others. It hinders others. Look in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. These scholars of the law had access to the truth. They had the great privilege of studying God's word. More than anyone else in their society, they had the training and the education and the expertise and the access to the key of knowledge, what should have opened the door to eternal life for them, what should have prepared them to receive the Messiah, what should have given them a, a heart that was eager to, to respond to Christ. But they did not enter themselves. All that access and exposure to God's word, all of their expertise and knowledge did them little good. In their rejection of Christ, they were choosing to stay on the outside. They're not in the kingdom. They have not entered into spiritual life. And what's worse, they've actually hindered others. Those who might have received the message, those who might have been open to the truth, those who might have followed Jesus, these scribes got in the way. He has 
a demon. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. He hasn't given us enough evidence. Show us another sign. This man does not wash. He eats with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. This man has blasphemed and claimed to be the son of God. They were getting in the way, blocking others from following Christ, dissuading others. Spiritual hypocrisy is a stumbling block to other people. And woe to those who cause others to stumble. In Luke 17, 1, Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Spiritual hypocrisy hinders others. It puts a stumbling block before those who might otherwise respond to Christ and his word. Once again, this is a piercing, devastating critique because these men fancied themselves teachers of the truth, but they were actually obscuring it. They thought they were leading people into the kingdom, but they're actually blocking the way. These are the marks of spiritual hypocrisy. Spiritual hypocrisy is focused, fixated on the external. Spiritual hypocrisy majors on the minors. It craves the praise of man. It has a defiling effect on the spiritual community. It burdens others, offers empty honor, and hinders others. Those are the marks of the spiritual hypocrisy demonstrated by the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus puts it fully on display, exposing the true nature of their heart and their character. Well, what effect did Jesus' words have on them? Well, verse 53 says, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Their hostility towards him only increases. Jesus is done with them. He said what he needs to say, and he leaves. But they're not done with him. They chase him down. They're pressing him, provoking him, trying to trap him, showing that they have utterly rejected his rebuke. They have refused to listen to his warnings. And because of that, the cross is looming ever larger as Jesus continues on his way to Jerusalem. This text not only moves the narrative forward in the Gospel of Luke, but it also offers us a spiritually valuable principle. Here's the summary. Here's our takeaway. Disciples of Jesus must guard against spiritual hypocrisy. Jesus has shown us what it looks like. He's shown us what it looks like to actually be full of darkness. And disciples of Jesus must guard against it. Such hypocrisy infects the soul. It can damage and destroy your spiritual life. This kind of hypocrisy can infect and can harm the family. Laying a stumbling block before spouses and children. Discouraging and grieving parents. This kind of spiritual hypocrisy can affect and harm the church. Robbing a church of its witness. Diluting the vibrancy of worship. Bringing corruption and sin and tolerance of what should not be tolerated into the church, distracting from the important things by emphasizing things that are far less significant. Don't let this hypocrisy get a foothold in your heart, in your home, or in this church. Jesus says, be careful 
lest the light in you be darkness. Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is like yeast. It only takes a little bit, but that little bit spreads. It grows. It multiplies. There needs to be a zero tolerance policy in our hearts for spiritual hypocrisy. Don't let it get a foothold here. If we examine ourselves this morning and recognize that we may not be just like the scribes and the Pharisees to the degree that they are, but a little bit of that sticks. We see somewhat of a reflection of maybe tendencies in our own hearts to seek the praise of man, to focus on externals, to major on the minors, whatever it may be. Six times in this text, Jesus says, woe, woe, woe. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. If some of this rebuke lands upon us this morning, this pronouncement of woe is a call to repentance, a call to recognize and confess we have not cleaned the inside of the cup and we need to cry out to the Lord and pray with David, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Blot out my transgressions. We need to confess our sins so that the one who is faithful and just will forgive us from our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. If any trace elements of this hypocrisy is found in us, it needs to be purged before it spreads like leaven. And the good news is that this cleansing is freely offered to us in Christ. This is the work of God's grace. This is what Christ's blood provides for us. This is what the Spirit accomplishes. God says in Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. If you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning, then confess your sin and ask God to purify you, to change you on the inside so that that change ripples outward. Sin isn't the only thing that's like leaven. The gospel, the kingdom of God, can be like leaven as well. It too grows. It too can spread, can take over, can begin to influence and change and transform every aspect of your life. So will you heed Jesus' warnings? Or will you allow spiritual hypocrites to influence you? False teachers, the wrong examples. Even worse, will you tolerate spiritual hypocrisy in your own life? May it never be. The solution for us today is to receive the word of Christ to submit to what he says, to his diagnosis of spiritual hypocrisy, and to receive the work of Christ, his work of cleansing and renewal, so that we might be true to Christ and authentic in our spiritual life of obedience to him. Would you bow with me and pray? Lord Jesus, these are strong words. And it may be that there are some among us today who do not know you, who who are spiritually hypocritical. Perhaps they profess to know you, to serve you, to believe in you. But if we were to pop the hood and look inside, there is a lot of corruption. There is spiritual hypocrisy. Lord, if there are some here today who need to repent and, and believe in the gospel and be saved, I pray that you would awaken them to the grave danger that they are in right now if they do not repent. Pray that they would hear your warnings, that they would turn from their sin. Lord Jesus, you castigated the, the scribes and the Pharisees in this text, but we read other texts where men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, Pharisees, they actually embraced your word. They responded to you. You save Pharisees. 
You cleanse and redeem and rescue those that have walked a life of self-righteousness and excusing their sin and looking down on others. The gospel goes out to hypocrites as well. So Lord, I pray you'd bring salvation today to those who are in need of it. And Lord, for those of us who know you, may we be highly sensitive to any evidence of hypocrisy in our own lives. Pray that we would not tolerate or excuse hidden sins that go unseen by others. That we would not tolerate or be content to have distorted desires, desires for the praise of man. That we would not be content to tolerate pride that that is confident in our own performance. Lord, help us to be humble today, to look to Christ, to rejoice in his righteousness and not our own. Lord, purge the leaven of hypocrisy from among us that we might be humble and faithful, quick to confess our sin, quick to boast only in Christ and the all-sufficient righteousness of his work on our behalf. Lord, purify us for your namesake, for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.